Hello, I is Falcha Gashaman Talk. Hamiosteru Anju, Scott McCreeman. Hello, and welcome to Shaman Talk. I'm your host today, Scott McCreeman. So, Rhonda and I have been talking about doing this for a little while, but I've been wrapped up in the Christmas tree harvest for the last three months. The way I've made sense, I've been working 70 hours a week, and the way I've made sense of that is that I'm uh, bringing in symbols of hope for the nation in these trying times. So today, I'm going to interview Rhonda McCrimmon. Welcome. Hi. How are you doing? I'm good, how are you? Yeah, very well. <laughs> Thought I would just uh, try out a little bit of Gaelic, thanks to Duolingo. Nice. This morning. Lovely. Mm-hmm. Well, shall we... Just dive just right in. dive right in. Yeah. Dive is a deer in Gaelic. So, Rhonda, my dear. <laughs> I'm quite nervous, I have to say, before we start, actually. I don't really know what you're going to ask or um, where this podcast is going to go. So, uh, it'll be really interesting to have you kind of lead the, lead the way. Yeah, yeah, I thought um, I might ask you... Well, I'll ask you some things that I'm interested to know about you, and perhaps some of your listeners might also be interested. Great. Yeah? Let's do it. So in the spirit of uh, true narrative, mm-hmm. I would like you to tell me what your earliest memory is. Okay. My earliest memory. I think my earliest memory was, I was, think I was about two and a half, and one day my sister, who's next, and out of the four of us, she was next. She was born and she had jaundice. And my earliest memory is seeing her in like a little plastic crib thing with a light bulb shining on her and then going home and getting my Barbie doll and putting it under a lamp. It's a really clear memory. And I think that I think that's my earliest my mm. earliest memory that I have. You put the Barbie doll under the lamp. To mimic to what mimic. was happening with Wendy in yeah. the hospital. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Great. And that was where? That would have been... Oh, I've lived in so many places. If I was two and a half... I would have lived in Glenrothes then, I think. Mm. And probably in um, the first house I lived in, I don't think we'd moved yet. I think Wendy was born in that house as well. In Blair Avenue. Mm. In Glenrothes. So for a bit of context, Glenrothes is a, a new town in Fife, in Scotland, which was built um, after the Second World War. And it's a, it's a melting pot of mm. people from all around Scotland. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's a memory you've told me about before, actually, that, okay. I'd, that I'd like you to, to share with everybody else. Right, okay. From, I think, the next place you lived, which is Rothsey on the Isle of Butte, um, just off the west coast of Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, the which, one about which one <laughs> down, down down by the harbour oh oh down on the beach yeah with the swans yeah okay so I was a bit older then that's not that wasn't the next place I lived the next place I lived was a different house in Glenrothes and then we moved to Rothsey after that we I think I worked out by the time I was twenty six or twenty seven I'd lived in as many houses as I had years in life so we moved a lot but we moved to Rothsey when I was like maybe primary two or primary three I think. Which is six, like and, six seven. and seven. Six and seven, yeah. So my parents had bought a cafe on the shore and it was one of these like quite depressed 
island places um, that was much in need of regeneration, like economically difficult to start a cafe. So they were both very busy, they worked all the time. And by that point, there were four kids, not just two, so there's four of us. And I was the oldest, so I spent a lot of time by myself. Um, but what I used to do when I got back from school, I used to get bread, the old bread from the cafe, and I would cross the main... I mean, it's only seven, you just wouldn't be able to do this now, so it's it's really interesting, but cross the main road, and I'll say across to the beach, and I would just spend hours on the beach, and the swans would come, the mum and dad swans, would come and just spend time with me and eat the bread. I mean, I know you're not supposed to feed swans bread, but I was seven. <laughs> I didn't know any better. But then they had babies and they, they would bring their babies. And it was great. And I would just sit in amongst these two swans and their eight babies and be surrounded and mm. be perfectly safe in my youthful trust, my innocence. So you were the, the ninth signet. The ninth signet. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good way to think about it. The ninth signet. And it really was a life affirming moment, I think, just being able to be completely at one without any adult interference. The fears of adults that come. Because actually what did happen one day was there was this old lady who saw me and I was quite small for my age, so I must have looked younger than even I was. And she came barreling into the middle of the signets and grabbed me. She got bitten and grabbed me by the arm and dragged me back to the cafe. I can't. I must have told her where the cafe was or whatever. I don't know. And she, her and my dad had this stand-up argument, and he was bawling at her, and it was all very scary. And this, and they didn't come back after that. I remember mm. that. And we moved not long after. So like that interference of that adult, like completely shattered that. Um, it makes me feel quite emotional just thinking about it. It really mm. shattered that imaginary, wasn't imaginary, that kind of like journey. Unconscious. And yeah, that just that absolute space of innocence and trust between me and those animals that just existed separate from everyone else. Wow. So. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. yeah that's a really interesting example of um, a conflict between culture and nature. Yeah. 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 Okay. Do you remember the... What are the first words you remember being spoken to you? So that's an an interesting question for me because I don't really think the same as you. Scott and I think very differently. We've discovered over the years. And words don't... I think it's experiences I remember. Mm. Words don't stick with me particularly. So I do remember the feeling of the words more than the actual words. <clears throat> I think that my earliest memories are of the feeling of stress and irritation, I think, is what I really remember. My parents were both very stressed and very irritated most of the time when I was young. And so I remember the feeling. I remember feeling like in the way and or not quite able to live up to whatever I was supposed to be doing as the oldest child of three or four siblings, but still being very young myself, so not really knowing what was expected of me, but knowing that I was annoying. Mm. So it's more the memory, the feeling of the words that I Mm -hmm. remember, rather than the words themselves. It it sounds as if you remember feeling that something was expected of you. Yeah. That you didn't know. Aye. 
I was always quite confused about why people were annoyed with me all the time. I th- I remember being told I was quite annoying. I was annoying. I remember that. Well, I was a wee bit older at that point, but by that point, I'd probably developed undiagnosed ADD, so I was probably really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> but that's fine. I mean, that's mm. just that's just a trauma trauma response to having that kind of unstable, traumatic kind of moving mm. around all the time. Not um, not ever feeling safe or stable. My dad was an alcoholic. Not uh, not constant, but I mean, when he was drinking, it was really scary and difficult. And my mum's always really upset. And there was conflict within the wider family as well. And um, what was true is that there was very little of the adult life that was explained to me. And I'm, I was a smart child, so I knew I could feel that there were things going on. I knew stuff was happening but nobody took the time to explain it to me. My parents later explained that they were trying to protect me from the stress and all the different things that were happening in their life. Um, but all that did was make me feel unsafe and confused mm. and like um, like I was being lied to and things were being hidden from me. Mm. Yeah, a, sen- a censorship. Aye, mm-hmm. very much censorship. By the time I left home, I didn't know how to look after myself particularly well or or deal with money. I mean, my parents were both terrible with money as well, but there was no... It was um, a complete lack of honest and open communication, I would say. Hmm. And that started right from the beginning. Okay. So we've got that theme of instability Hmm. through the years there. Can you think of any anything that was constant for you, maybe internally, something that might have been kind of compensatory for that for you? Any any like thoughts, activities, symbols, images? For example, I've I've recently been thinking about something I used to doodle constantly all my life in school and before and even I've even um, I've even drawn this on the headstock of my ukulele a few years ago which was just the simple picture of a, a shark fin breaking through the surface of, of the water mm. and I'm now starting to conceptualise that as a, a kind of um, awareness of unconscious processes that perhaps might be a little bit frightening or something mm. Yeah, I guess if we're talking about symbols or doodling, that's a really good place for me to start. I always did old houses, like mm. really simple, really simple houses. That was the thing I always did old. And if I think about that, that's a the home is your sense of safety, isn't it? Your sense of centre, your sense of knowing where you are and where you're safe. So that was I would doodle that all the time. The other thing that I would doodle a lot would be circles. But then they would start off really neat and then they would go round and round and round and round and round and round and, round and sometimes they would, they would go right through the paper. Mm. Yeah, with the front of that, I did that a lot, remember. Um, Both of those things can be symbols of the self as well. Mm-hmm. The wholeness template. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But yeah, that like the, the unconscious movements that we make when usually in, in a daydream state, in a dissociated state, would be what... 
I guess const- what would be constant, what I remember being really constant was reading. Like, mm. I love to read. I would read all the time. So, always, like, fiction, like, Enid Blyton type stuff, like, Running Away to the Secret Island was, like, my favourite book. These, like, four kids who would just, like, manage on their own on an island. It was great. And I would spend hours. I must have read that book hundreds of times, and I've still got the original copy that I read, and it's all falling to bits, and there's pages missing, but... um, Anything like that. And I would spend hours just, like, reading in my room by myself. And also... What would be a constant? So the other thing that happened internally for me growing up was that I created, like, an internal landscape which now I realise is like very schmack if you if you want to label it like that. But my parents were both also there were many things, but they were um, they spent a lot of time in a spiritualist church. I was baptised in a spiritualist church, so I was aware of the dead. I was aware of spirits. I was aware of the church. I was aware of God, but not in a there was no regularity to, to any sort of faith teachings. It was always this is the new thing or it's this thing or it's this thing and there was never any ground in or foundation so I didn't really know what I was supposed to <clears throat> believe in. I didn't know what I was meant to be like following. I knew that I was supposed to follow something according to everybody around me. Most people were all Christian, went to the local church, went to Sunday school. Occasionally we went to Sunday school, but I think it was more about free babysitting for my mum than it was about religion. So I was always very confused about, felt quite confused about what faith was. Or So I just ended up in this like really rather lovely space of just making up for myself. So I would have, I had, so I had this idea that, um, Oh yes, that was another thing. I did rebel a little bit and end up going to church because my parents at that point were fairly anti-religious. So I rebelled and went to church. And so, of course, everybody in this church setting were telling me because my parents at that point in my life were into like tarot and um, spirits and... How old were you? How old was that at this point? I don't know, maybe 14 or 15 at this point. Um, So at that point, I was always... I was actually having people telling me that my parents were dealing with the devil and like were evil um, and these people were like a tribe that I had found that I felt safe in for a short time until I started to question didn't make sense to me I was like that doesn't make sense I know that's not true I know my parents are not that and I know what they do is not that so what is it that's happening here like why is that why is this but because I was never given the opportunity to really grow an ability to think um, what's the word logically or cognitively you know I was never given that ability it was just all in my head swirling around in this big mess so anyway I had this inner landscape where I would where I had God who was there because I like that I like feeling like God's there I still feel like God is there I neither I don't hold God to be a man or a woman or or any sort of it's just a thing it's just a being it's just a it's just a feeling of ultimate divinity I guess and then, so as a child, so I had God at that point was still a white man with a beard, which was quite comforting. And then, but then he had all his helpers, you see, and all his helpers were all the spirits that I would talk to and all the all, all the ancestors that my granddad was always around. 
so I always knew that he was there. Your granddad that died when your dad was a yeah, my granddad. Young... I didn't meet him. I never met him in person. He was always around. Um, and it was just like holy comfort in this group of beings that kind of were always there for me to talk to, and because it was very lonely, it was a really lonely child. So, um, that was fairly constant. It was my in our landscape and the people that were kind of there that I could talk to and mm. kind of be with and then that just developed over the years and then I went through a period of time in adulthood where I just didn't believe in anything mm. <clears throat> maybe that's another question for another time well I mean it's it's a classic classic hero's journey mm. um, rediscover what you lost as a child as an adult mm. which I think you're right there eh? mm. um, okay inner landscape Imagination, if you could transform into any animal, what would you be? I might need some time to think about that. That's quite a lot of pressure. I don't know. Well, I'd quite like to have wings. Quite like the idea of flying. So maybe some sort of large bird, maybe a swan. Mm, Yes. Because I quite like water, also. Swans spend a lot of their time on water. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have a connection. But maybe I'm just thinking that in this moment because I was th- telling you the story about the swans, mm. maybe. But... Yep. Yeah, swans definitely crop up in in Celtic mythology as uh, something that can travel between the worlds. And cool. people often transform into swans. That is true. And back again. Also. Yeah. Interesting. Um, okay. I'd like to ask you about the singing and toning that you do okay. in your work. Okay. Um, can you tell me about your journey with that? Okay. This has turned into like a childhood therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> That's obviously what's, uh, what's required at the moment. All right. So, um, I really always really liked to make noises with my voice and sing. But again, growing up in the type of household I grew up in, there was never encouragement or really any time for that. And it, but then, in fourth year in high school... 16. 16. I, these things just happened to me. I just fell into them. I didn't ever do anything on purpose in my life. It felt like I just fell into things all the time. Yeah. Um... Carol Jung says, anything that happens to me in my life that I didn't plan for, I have to take as the language of God. Is that right? I like that. Well, this would be that for sure. So I had this older girl who's my friend and uh, she was trying out for the school play, but she didn't want to go by herself. So she asked if I would come with her and I said, fine, I'll come with you. So it was like a group of maybe 40 girls, mostly girls, a few boys in this music room in high school and we were all just singing a song and the teacher would go around and listen to everybody singing and then choose a few people who could sing the song to audition for the next, to go into the next phase of auditions. And I ended up being asked to audition for the lead in the school play and I was like, okay, sure. I was like literally never, I just, I was just so pliable. I was like, okay, okay. So... Um, me and this girl and two other people had auditioned for it was Oliver so it was Nancy and I got the part over this friend who had asked me to come 
and our relationship was never the same. The same. <laughs> she ended up being my understudy and the lesser friend of Nancy. It was a bit sad, <laughs> actually, if I look back, because she was like in sixth year. But anyway, so I ended up being the leading the school play. And it was amazing. I loved that year at school. I didn't like school very much. It was a very traumatic time for me, and usually, like just in general. But that gave, really gave me something to focus on and be part of. And it was great fun. Um, and then I had to get tickets for my family. We could get tickets for our family to come and see the play. My dad wasn't going to come to see it. And I had to beg him to come and see it. I was like, I had to beg him. Oh, and I think my mum intervened in the end, which she didn't usually do because he was quite a scary man. But he did come. And he sat right at the back of the auditorium, right in the middle, with his arms folded, looking bored at his mind the whole time. And of course, I was really aware that he was there. So I probably didn't give him my best performance. But anyway, he said to me afterwards, ah, you'll never make a singer. That's what he said. It's the first thing he said to me after this play. Mm. And I was like devastated and just really upset. And it just made me close down that part of me, that singing part of me. So for years, I never... I would sing along with things. Yes. I'd like to interject at this point. Uh-huh. I've I've spoken to people that were around, people outside your family that were around at the time that that play was going on. Yeah. Was that in, in Levin or Methyl? Uh, methyl. Methyl. Yeah. They say that it was a, a very memorable performance. <laughs> yeah. It was talked about afterwards. It was talked about afterwards. Yeah, so it that, was so good. The, your dad's was, review was yeah. uh, uncommon. It was just, yeah, but it meant everything. That's the thing, isn't yeah. it? Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So then kind of that part of me, like, kind of shut down for, for a long time. And then I met you. And you were all musicians. I think. You know, I used to... No, that was it. I used to sing along with things and then I met you. But I remember being in the Bothy together in Falkland and singing along with some mm-hmm. Etta James song or something mm-hmm. and seeing the look on your face... When I was doing that and being like, oh, maybe I, maybe, maybe I am an okay singer. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is okay. Yeah. That was kind of the start. Of, did you remember that? Yeah. The look on my face being. Just like I don't know. How, how did you perceive it? I, you just seemed a little bit shocked. Yeah, well, I remember feeling captivated. <laughs> it's before we were dating, right? Mm. Yeah. Definitely in the uh, pro drama to that. Yeah. So then. We got together and you guys were all musicians and I just felt really left out a lot. And I think it was just a story of my life really. And I was like, well, instead of feeling left out, why don't you try joining in? So I thought, well, I can hold a tune. I'm all right. So then that's when that started, isn't it? Started mm-hmm. to sing and get better. And over the years, now I love singing. And then when I started my shamanic training, it was just a natural progression. I did have to get over a lot of feeling silly and not feeling good enough and my voice I struggled to use my voice in my training and it wasn't until after I graduated that I really found my confidence in my tone and in my chanting and my spirit song and my channeling and now I just really completely surrender to the spirits and they use the vibration of my voice for really effective um, healing I think so mm. that is some of the journey with that yeah, that's really interesting. Um, when you when you were mentioning um, getting over singing and it, I guess it being heard, it, it made me made me think about. I mean, a, a lot of people feel that, yeah, and it get um, 
it's talked about as performance anxiety, isn't mm-hmm. it? Um, and I think I think that is taken to be about um, judgment and maybe not being good enough. Mm. But also, it makes me think that um, like singing and music, like like all art, um, it does come from that like that that deeper place. Eh? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm constantly going on about the unconscious now, so that's what I'm just going to okay. just going to frame it as. Like, but whatever, these are all ways of talking about the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like that all bubbles up um, from the unconscious, so it's yeah, it makes it makes a lot of sense that people would be really nervous about exposing that, or perhaps even um, you know exposing it to other people, but maybe even exposing it to themselves. Hmm. I do remember feeling that way. I do remember having to go through a process of realising that I I was scared of successful me. I was scared of actually being the me that I'd always wanted to be. It was a scary prospect. Mm. And it was a whole year, I think, wasn't it, of like Mm -hmm. deep work to be able to embrace success and being good enough and being... um, good at what I do and not being afraid to say I'm, I'm good at what I do mm. and I've worked hard to get to where I've gotten to and I'm only right just it feels like right at the beginning of our of our journey so yeah I think that singing being able to be heard and seen in that space of performance not even just in shamanism but with you and I mm-hmm. and when we've done gigs and being up on stage and being and there's just a really special click place that happens when mm-hmm. you're when you're performing. I think. Yeah, if you can really open up and and give yourself to the to the performance. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot that can that can be let out, and it's it, it can yeah. be it's challenging and fun to try and let as much of that out as possible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a there's a concept in the the gypsy singing tradition called cognac. Which is which is about really feeling the words in the song mm-hmm. and trying to trying to let all that emotion completely flow through you when you when you're singing. Mm. Yeah. Okay, I think I'll ask one more question. Okay. Um, and I think it's going to be the most cliched question. Okay. Of, of the interview. <laughs> okay. Um, so. Mm-hmm. You're on a desert island. Right. <laughs> Survival is assured. Okay. There's food and shelter available to you. Okay. What one item do you choose to have with you? Can it be a person? It depends whether you view that person as an item or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, can I give you two answers then? Mm-hmm. Okay, well... If, if you're talking about me, I'm happy to be objectified. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, uh, you would be my first choice, I have to say. <laughs> I don't think I'd want to be on a desert island without you. But if, but you know, assuming that you're maybe there, what object would I take? It's really tough. I'm quite attached to stuff. My stuff, eh? I quite mm. like my stuff. I like things. I do work hard not to be overly attached. So maybe it would be something... So you can make shamanic clicky things out of most stuff so maybe that would be a bit of a waste of an item mm. like assuming it's a um, if it's like a 
a coconut island, then coconuts are really good. <laughs> that's what I'm. That's what I'm hoping for. I mean, that's the cliche desert yeah, island. Desert I think island, that's all right. with, like yeah. beautiful blue water and mm. white sandy beaches and sun, as opposed to um, Mount Hebrides, which I do love, but they're not that warm. Mm. <laughs> it's probably big bones though. If it was the Mount Hebrides, plenty, plenty, plenty of bones, bones lying about for sun bleached uh, net floats. It, yeah, for. <laughs> For creating music and clicking, so maybe that would be okay. Maybe we didn't need to take something like that. Mm-hmm. I'm tempted to say my phone, but that's not very dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> that would that would solve quite a lot of uh, as long as it's internet, I guess. I don't know. That's really hard. Mm. I'd probably take something to. I'd probably take maybe a Kindle with mm. lots of books on it. Correct. Or something like something to mm. read and learn and keep my mind active when I, whilst on this desert island nice I think that's what I would do mm. do you think you might read the Swiss Family Robinson you mean again <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's about that time of year though for me to read that book that's the th- second time this week that's been mentioned I might read it mm. I always read it around Christmas eh okay well I think that's a good place to stop yeah thank you very much for your uh, candour Thank you for your questions. That You're was welcome. really good fun. I was like, oh my goodness, what is he going to ask me? And am I going to be able to answer in a way that's like even remotely interesting? But hopefully that, hopefully everybody enjoyed that um, little insight into me and through Scott's eyes. And uh, I'm going to take over now if that's okay. Yeah, yeah. So this is the um, Friday before Christmas that you'll be listening to this. And next Friday is Christmas Day, so we've decided to have a week off next week. So this podcast will need to sustain you for two whole weeks. If you miss me too much, you can go back and listen to back episodes. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure everybody will be will be busy um, celebrating Christmas, Yule, Solstice um, with family and friends, hopefully. And I wish you a very lovely time. And I hope you, um, I, hope, I really hope you have a, a smashing holiday season. And I will see you all same time, same place in two weeks. Thanks for listening. One last thing. I really encourage you to join my Facebook community. It's a beautifully safe space to discuss all things to do with shamanism and you are very welcome to join us in that community there. If that resonates with you, you'll find the link on the show notes for this episode. Much love and have a great day.